So we're in Acts chapter 2. If you got a Bible, you can open it to there. Uh, we read through that, that passage that we're going to be looking at today, Acts 2, 14 through 18. Uh, but this morning, we really only have two words uh, that we're, we're looking at, and they're these two words, but Peter, but Peter. And so today, I know we've been journeying through Acts here at rapid speed, but we're going to slow down a little bit, and we're going to start a nice five-week sermon um, on, or sermon series on those two words, but Peter, okay? And uh, the reason we're doing that is because it is of unbelievable significance, and I think of hope to the Christian that it is Peter who preaches the opening sermon of our faith. Peter, three and a half years prior to this moment, he was a Jewish school dropout in an uneducated part of Israel as a fisherman. Three and a half years later, he is the guy standing up in front of thousands proclaiming the gospel message of Christ. But Peter, Peter is the guy who was uh, called out onto the water but took his eyes off of Jesus and began to sink. Peter was the guy who was confronted with the simple truth of the gospel that Jesus would die and then rise from the grave and said, don't talk like that, Jesus. And Jesus called him Satan. Peter, the guy who when Christ needed him most in spiritual warfare, fell asleep. Peter, the guy who said to Jesus, I will never deny you. And then a few hours later, denies him three times in the presence of Christ. Peter is the guy who preaches the opening sermon of our faith. So we're going to look over the next couple of weeks at these two simple words, but Peter, as a reason, uh, looking into them to, to find hope for each and every one of us in how Christ can use us as a part of the church that Jesus came to plant. And see, in our series through the book of Acts, we arrived at chapter 2, and in chapter 2, we're looking into what is this church that Jesus came to plant. We've learned this thus far, that unless the Holy Spirit is the power and Jesus is the head of it, then it's not the church that Jesus came to plant. It can talk like a church, it can act like a church, but unless Jesus is in charge and the Holy Spirit is the power, it's not the one he came to plant. In the church that Jesus came to plant then, he works through spirit-filled people, people like Peter. Now, some of us grew up in uh, backgrounds and church environments where Peter wasn't just one of the saints. Peter was, well, he was vastly more important than just one of the saints. We're going to go the opposite today. And we're going to say that Peter is just one of the saints, just a man who was um, trained up and released by God through the power of the Holy Spirit to be a part of the work of ministry. And that as Peter was, uh, well, as Jesus worked through Peter, Jesus can work through you and I. He can work through our faults. He can work through our failures. He can work through our fears. And he can use us in the church that he came to plant there's a couple of verses that I uh, kind of use as support in our premise this morning. One of them would be uh, simply Paul saying, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. And what we're saying there is not that we need to elevate Paul as some superhuman, right? Or not that we even want to elevate Peter as some superhuman, uh, but that there are things that we can learn from the saints of old. We see this in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, when it lays out the heroes of the faith. 
We see in the book of James where Jesus' half-brother says, hey, Elijah was a man just like you, just like you. And when he prayed that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. And then when he prayed for it to start up again, it did. Elijah, a man just like you and I, right? And Elijah had the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. We have the Spirit of God now post the day of Pentecost when we're filled with his Spirit. And so we're going to look at a couple of the traits in the making of Peter. A couple of the traits in the making of Peter. We're going to look at five of them over the next couple of weeks, and we'll use a little bit of Acts 2, 14 through 21 uh, to help us understand traits two through five. But today, we're just looking at Trait number one in these two words, but Peter. Here's trait number one. Trait number one is this, resilient. Peter had a spiritual resilience, a godly resilience. In fact, I'll kind of walk you through the first five traits uh, so you can see them and we'll revisit the next ones. Trait number one is resilience. Trait number two, he was trained. Jesus said to Peter, I will make you a fisher of men. And then at the end of his life, Jesus, uh, well, the end of Jesus's before he ascended up in heaven, looked at Peter and said, now you go make. And so there's a making of disciples. Trait number three, he was spirit-filled. Trait number four, he was a team player. We'll explain that one. And then trait number five, he was correctable. Or the modern term we use for that, he was coachable. And so these five traits uh, that were in Peter are five traits that should be in us as followers of Christ. Around here, we have seven values. Uh, The fifth value, as we lay it out, is this, that we believe in making disciples and servant leaders. We believe in making disciples and servant leaders, and that is for all of us, that we are all to be made into this. And uh, so this little sermon series is underneath that value, helping us understand how do we get made into disciples and then released into being servant leaders. This sermon, particularly today, is also an answer to the question of how does the Christian get back up? Or how does the Christian keep on going in the right way? How does the Christian keep on going uh, when they sin? How does the Christian keep on going when they make a mistake, when they fall? How does the Christian keep on going when they face trial or tragedy? How does the Christian keep on going when uh, they truly are a victim to somebody else's sin? How does the Christian keep on going uh, in the midst of despair, uh, in the midst of pain, in the midst of the low or the dry season? And what is the right way to keep on going. Like we talked about last week, we believe in the law of resurrection, that the God who knows the end also knows the beginning. Or as we said last week, the God who knows the death also knows the resurrection. And there is a process that we can begin to walk through in those seasons so that we can experience the joy of resurrection in our own life. And so we want to walk through this first trade because I believe it all starts with this one. I love the Batman movies uh, with Christian Bale in them. And in one of the opening scenes of the very first one, uh, right, uh, Batman's father asked him, hey, why do we fall? So we can learn to get ourselves back up, right? And today, what I want to talk about is how properly the Christian gets him or herself back up. See, there is a resilience that the world or the church uh, sometimes... um, uh, incorrectly understands. And sometimes even in the church, under the guise of godliness, we will use worldly methods of resilience, a worldly way of getting back up. And we want to see the biblical way or the godly path uh, of resilience, not the worldly one. Worldly resilience looks like this. Um, What you say can't harm me. 
Uh, I, I, you can't tell me that I'm wrong. I, I, we hide or cover up when there is failure. Uh, we stand defiantly against our enemies, right? We, we shift blame or we uh, try to distract or uh, anything that comes against us, we simply say, oh, that's probably attack of Satan, right? And these become like these worldly paths of resilience. And at the heart of worldly resilience is uh, if I toughen myself up, if I have thick enough skin, uh, if I play my cards correctly, then I will get myself back up. That's worldly resilience. Godly resilience couldn't be more different. Godly resilience starts with repentance. Godly resilience starts with humility. It starts with us not standing up defiantly, but lowering ourselves before our perfect king. And godly resilience then ends up with our king bringing us back up. And so in this little path here that we're going to talk about, how is it that Peter ended up being the very first guy to preach a sermon uh, in the name of Christ? It wasn't because he was perfect. It wasn't because he never messed up. In fact, there is something beautiful that the very first person who is commissioned as a pastor uh, in the new covenant is Peter. In John 21, we see the beautiful restoration of Peter after he has denied Christ. He gets into this conversation where Jesus just lavishes him in grace. And at the end of the conversation, he doesn't say, hey, Peter, um, because I, I, I just want you to know that I, that I still love you. Even though you, you messed up and even though you're never going to be used again, I want you to know that I still love you. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Peter, even though you messed up, I want you to know that I still love you. And guess what, Peter? You can still be a member of the twelve. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, Peter, I still love you. Uh, I, uh, of course I still love you. And guess what? I even have a new and a greater work for you to do. Feed my sheep. It's amazing that it is Peter who is the first commissioned pastor in the new covenant. And first always matter biblically. It's almost as if Jesus was looking out at the history of the church and looking out at the history of the faith, uh, both in spiritual leaders and in all of his disciples saying, uh, I want to paint a picture or I want to give an example of how the Christian can get back up and be used again in my kingdom. And so I'll pick the guy who messed up most recently as my first example. Peter, but Peter. I mean, it's remarkable. Two words we can't just skip over. There's so much that God is trying to teach us in this, and there's so much I believe that he's trying to teach you and I on how we keep on going. And this morning, uh, as, I, uh, as I'm talking, uh, the situation for you might be your own sin. Might be. Might be just a mistake. The differentiation there between a sin and a mistake is we can make mistakes, right, that aren't necessarily sinful, but they were still poor decisions, might be something that happened to you. Might be a trial or a tragedy that you um, didn't deserve, but just occurred. And, and now it's how do I keep on walking? How do I keep on moving toward Christ and what he has called me to do and who he has called me to be? So I got five things I want to talk about this morning. And so I'll lay them all out. Uh, the first one is, as I previously mentioned, repentance. The, the path to, to godly resilience does not start with pride. It does not start with um, refusing to acknowledge a mistake, uh, like, um, like saying, like, well, you know, I can't appear weak, or uh, if, I, um, if I acknowledge mistakes, then, uh, you know, then like there's a crack in the armor. 
No, no, the first step is repentance. It's, I think, why Peter writes in his opening letter uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, about how we need to be holy as Christ is holy. That's so why a little bit later on in, in that letter, Peter quotes Christ and, and also the Old Testament when he says that God lifts the humble, right? He elevates the humble, exalts the humble, and lays low the proud. And by the way, this doesn't always happen immediately. This can be a process. In fact, oftentimes, there's actually like an inverse between the worldly resilient and the spiritually or the biblically resilient. Oftentimes, um, the, the worldly resilient at the beginning look very strong, right? But over time, their pride and their refusal to repent leads to long-term decay. And the spiritually resilient at the beginning often look very weak, but as they remain humble before the king, over time, God raises them back up. It's interesting how he does that. And the first step of true resilience is true repentance. Uh, David, uh, I'm going to reference three people a lot this morning. Uh, Peter, David, and Paul. And you're like, ah, yes, because they're the great heroes of the faith. Yes, they are. But also because they're the three guys who messed up the most. Interesting, isn't it? The one, the king, who the lion would always carry through has the chapter in the scripture most about a broken heart over sin. The guy who would be commissioned as the first pastor, Peter, right? The one who had just failed him. The guy who would be commissioned as the first uh, evangelist and missionary was the one, Paul, who was just killing Christians. Look at that. Isn't it amazing, right? And so um, uh, David, uh, one of the guys who I'm going to be referencing this morning, uh, he was an individual who found himself in a, uh, it wasn't a mistake, right? It was sin. And we call sin what it is, sin. And David simply um, writes these words in his famous confessional chapter, Psalm 51, 17. And by the way, I know that there was an element uh, of David where the Holy Spirit had to use a prophet to come in and to get David to repent, right? Uh, And so there was a gap there between where it seemed like David was probably concealing his sin. But in the moment that the prophet showed up and the Holy Spirit was obviously present in that moment, David didn't look at the prophet and say, get out of here. You're trying to ruin my kingdom. Um, Get out of here. I don't have to listen to you. Off with it his head, what did David do? He was broken. When the Holy Spirit showed up, he allowed the Spirit to break him. Then David writes Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. What's he saying? He's saying, don't run around trying to earn your way back into it. Don't think you can fix it by your good behavior or by just proving yourself and your decency. He says, no, what God is looking for here is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You will not despise. The path for the Christian um, to to continue getting back up is to um, being able to stand before the Father and saying, my heart is broken because of my sin. I am contrite, Lord. I, I understand, David says, against you and you only have I sinned. I see how my offense is against you, Lord. And it brings him to his knees. Humility, repentance is the the pathway then to getting back up. The complete opposite of the world, which says stand yourself back up, be defiant in the midst of your attackers. No, no, not with the follower of Christ. Starts on our knees in repentance. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. 
And so here is where David begins. A, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote this. Uh, I, I shared it on my Facebook, and I want to I read it to you this morning because I think it helps me summarize my opening point here. So I'll just read it to you. One beauty of the gospel is God's ability to take the truly repentant and help them back up. Isn't that a beautiful thing about our gospel? We don't write people off. The key is being willing to admit when you are wrong. The Lord works through this humility and forges a beautiful path forward. The opposite is also true, though. When your pride doesn't allow you to make an honest evaluation and admit when you are wrong, you will remain stagnant or decay. The way of the gospel isn't about perfection, but humility. God can do tremendous things through the humble of heart, and it is never too late to start. See, the the spiritually resilient person knows that this path of redemption always begins with our repentance and humility, but God has this beautiful way when we begin to walk through that to lift us back up. To, to, to restore, to redeem, to even produce, uh, and sometimes even things more beautiful on the other side of it. But the opposite is true. When in our pride, we refuse to admit our sin, when in our pride, we adfu- refuse to admit our mistakes, it might not be immediate, but the verse will always be true. God, it elevates the humble and the prideful he lays low. The the fruit may not always be seen, but eventually it will be. And so for each and every one of us, like wherever we're at on this journey and however it is that God wants to use us in his kingdom, this is the Christian life. It is is being willing to lay ourselves down. It is being willing to humble ourselves. And by the way, this principle, uh, it applies because it is a godly principle. It applies to every part of our life. It applies in your marriage, right? In a marriage, if you're unwilling to admit when you're wrong, if you're unwilling to humble yourself ever, if you always remain defiant, right, you might win the battle. But the war of your marriage, you'll see how long it lasts. You'll see the health of it over the years. This is true in every part of our lives. When we operate in this way, in these godly principles, God can turn even our greatest mistakes, even Peter's great failure, into making him the guy who gets to preach on opening day. If we'll start here. Now, this is where it begins, uh, this process. It begins with a humility. It begins with a repentance uh, in the midst of our sin. Okay, by the way, I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not saying that you need to repent for something you didn't do. If you uh, just were, uh, you know, there was a trial or a tragedy that wasn't necessarily sinful, right? That doesn't mean we have to run and say, ah, right, I sinned, and so this is upon me. That's not necessarily true. But when it is obviously our sin, we start here. And even in those moments, right, where those other things happened to us and they weren't necessarily the result of sin, even in that, we should start with humility before God that says, Lord, what do you want me to learn in this? What do you want me to learn in this? Christ never sinned, but he certainly knew what it was to be humble. Did he not? Number two, uh, then where where does this go next in in this process uh, of getting back up or of continuing to keep going? It starts with repentance and humility. And then number two, it is this. It is accepting the practical consequences while still understanding the spiritual realities. 
A lot of times what worldly resilience will do is this. It'll say, um, uh, I'm not willing for anything to change, right? I'm, I'm still me in Christ. Uh, and so regardless of this behavior, regardless of what happened, nothing should change because I am in Jesus. Worldly resilience will often say that. Spiritual resilience, godly resilience, understands this principle that sin always leads to death in both the practical and in the spiritual. Sin always leads to death. Uh, by the way, that is why it is always loving to encourage somebody who is in sin to depart from sin. Because sin always leads to death. And if we believe the scriptures and we believe that God has wired us to be in holiness, then sin is always leading to decay. And so um, the, the, the principle at play here is the, the, the godly resilient understands there may be natural consequences. Look at Peter. What happened after he denied Christ? What did he do? He went back fishing. What about Paul? So Paul, uh, he has this radical conversion, right? He, he's, I mean, literally brought to his knees, right? He's riding on a donkey. And the next scene, all right, and the next kind of run uh, of Saul's life when his name is changed to Paul uh, it is not just this, like, radical acceptance by all of the Christians. In fact, what happens is Paul ends up taking some time out in the wilderness. Why? Well, first off, God wants to work some things in him. But one of the reasons why Paul is out there is because the Christians don't believe him. He had just gotten done murdering their friends. And then he's saying, hey, no, I had this radical conversion experience. Let me come to your house. And they're like, no thanks. Can you blame them? There are practical consequences to our sin. And so Saul has to wait and around for a while for people to go, okay, he's not actually going to kill us. And here's what Saul doesn't do. He doesn't send out an email. He doesn't get on his Instagram. He doesn't get on his TikTok or his Facebook or anything else and say, I can't believe these Christians aren't accepting me. No, he understands. He understands. There's a practical consequence to sin. And so he waits it out. He lets God's timing be God's timing. And then in the right moment, because of uh, his friend Barnabas, he is welcomed back into the family, and then his ministry begins. There are natural consequences. But this same guy, Saul, turned into Paul, also understood the beauty of spiritual reality. And what is that? that during that entire time and in the moment of his conversion, he is now clothed in Christ. That, he, that, 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 that God has restored him from a spiritual perspective in that single moment. He doesn't have to earn his grace. He doesn't have to earn his right standing before God. He is clothed and he is covered in his spiritual reality. If you were here a couple of months ago, Paul realized what? That he was now wearing the Snuggie and it couldn't be taken from him. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, just move on, okay? Don't have enough time to explain. He was clothed in Christ, clothed in Jesus in the instant. A lot of times what worldly defiance will do or worldly resilience will do is we'll say, nope, I am clothed in Jesus. Uh, and if you tell me uh, that there has to be a change, a practical change or something like that, um, man, you're, you're religious or uh, you're, you're Satan, right? Trying to knock me off. And, uh, and so I'm going to stand and I'm going to fight through it. And now worldly resilience or spiritual resilience understands both of these realities. 
understands being brought low and then letting God, not ourselves, raise us back up, right? And so uh, let me give you an earthly example of this. Okay, Um, so when I was 16 and uh, it was prom night and uh, my dad called me uh, and said, whatever you do, do not drive her home, okay? Because I know you, you can fall asleep doing anything, okay? And I can, very good at it right? And so what did I do? I drove her home. She lived a long way away. Now I'm driving back home. I fell asleep at the wheel and I drove over a stop sign. I woke up to the sign of the stop sign, the sound of the stop sign slamming into the windshield, right? And then this was, I didn't have a cell phone, uh, right? This was way back when. And um, to run down the street and get a payphone and call my dad collect at 3.30 in the morning, right? Every parent's worst nightmare, the phone ringing at 3.30 in the morning, right? And so I call, my dad answers. He was obviously relieved when he heard my voice, right? Uh, and I said, yeah, uh, I crashed the car. I totaled the car, okay? Now, what happened? Stephen had to pay the $500 deductible, right? Stephen wasn't allowed to drive for the next month, okay? I think, you can ask him on your way out today, I think he still loved me the same, okay? I think they still loved me but there were practical consequences that I had to sit under. And God actually uses these in our own life. He uses them in our own life because God is interested in our holiness, not in just our personal idea of how we think we should be used by God. He is interested in us becoming more like his son, Jesus, and reflecting him more. And so God actually uses these sometimes to continue to refine us into the people that he wants us to be. And so that's step two. And then we get to the the third part of this process of the the Christian continuing to be able to go. Because um, when we're operating in worldly um, resilience instead of biblical resilience, um, then in number three here, um, my third point is this, that our eyes remain fixed on Jesus. Our eyes remain fixed on Jesus during these times. During these times. This is why, like the song, uh, I'll raise a hallelujah to the unbeliever makes no sense. I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm, right? Like, like regardless of what happens, like Jesus, I believe in you. I love you. I'm running after you. It makes no sense to the unbeliever, but to the, to the believer, uh, to, the, to the spiritually resilient, it makes perfect sense because they know like even in the midst of all of the craziness, whether it's my fault or not my fault, my eyes are fixed on Jesus, My eyes are fixed on Jesus. And here's what uh, the enemy wants to do, or here's what our own natural hearts begin to do sometimes in these seasons, is we take our eyes off of Jesus, and you know where we put them? On ourselves. We put them on ourselves. We say, I'm going to get back to where I was, or I'm going to fix this problem. We put our eyes on ourselves and we try to fix our own issues and, uh, and, and we put our eyes on ourselves we, and when we take them off of Jesus and we put our eyes on ourselves, um, a few things also begin to happen. A lot of times in situations like this, when we put our eyes on ourselves, what we do is um, we, 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 we take our eyes off of Jesus and when we do, um, we end up hating his church often in seasons like this. We, we, we actually, um, when we take our eyes off of Jesus and we put them on ourselves or, or maybe we, we are like kind of playing a victim card on ourselves or, um, 
you know, we, we look out at everybody else and say, man, this was their fault or they're screw, so screwed up or they're so messed up, right? Uh, and, and we just put it on ourselves. We're like, I'm just going to take care of myself. Like, I don't need anybody else anymore. We begin to isolate ourselves. Our eyes are fixed on us. Instead, where are they supposed to be fixed? On Jesus. And guess what? When our eyes are fixed on Jesus, you know what we can't do? Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and hate his church at the same time. We can't. And so one of the ways that we know that we've taken our eyes off our, on Jesus are, are when we begin to, to despise his church. Another way um, th- th- this begins to happen, we put our eyes on our, ourselves, we take them off of Jesus, and we allow uh, bad doctrine to begin to creep in. Right? And we, we begin to say, oh, they don't understand. I understand. They don't understand. Oh, Jesus is, uh, he's not like they say he's like. And, uh, and so Jesus is actually like this. And, and we use terms like, well, my God or my Jesus... By the way, if you use that term, you know what he is? He is your God and your Jesus, but he's not God and Jesus. He's the one you made up. He's the one you made up. And you're crafting him in your image, which violates the opening commandment. Right? He is God and he is Jesus. And our eyes are then fixed on him, and in him is all grace and truth, proper doctrine. And so one of the other ways we know we've begun is we start, start throwing off good doctrine, right? And what has happened in those moments? We've turned our eyes to ourselves instead of him. The resilient Christian, the, the resilient servant of Christ. And through the storm, right? Um, through the trial, through it all, just keeps their eyes fixed on Jesus. I will not take my eyes off of Jesus. And when my eyes are fixed on Jesus, I can't help but be a part of his church. When my eyes are fixed on Jesus, I can't help but hold on to proper truth. When my eyes are fixed on Jesus, get this one, I can't help but love my brothers and sisters in Christ. Sadly, haven't we seen this when, um, when people walk through difficult times or they walk through something uh, and all of a sudden the language that starts coming out of their mouth or the attitude of their heart is, oh, I just hate Christians. The Christian saying that. Now, if your eyes are fixed on Jesus, you can't get to that spot. You say, well, how do you know that, Stephen? Because <laughs> they wrote it in the book. Right? That we would love one another. That an actual sign that the Spirit is in us is that we love one another. And so you just, you just keep my, I'm just keeping my eyes fixed on Jesus. Okay, now as my eyes are being fixed on Jesus, this fourth one begins to emerge, and it is this, that we anchor ourselves in the promises of God. Because as we do keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, there will be all of these temptations from our own heart. There will be all of these temptations from our past, all of these temptations from our hurts uh, and the things that we have experienced, right? And what we'll want to do is, uh, is start walking away or we'll get um, pushed by every sway of the wind, right? Or we'll be drawn back to our past uh, and things like that instead of uh, moving forward. And so how do, we, how do we stay strong? How do we stay steady in the midst of all of these? We are anxious in the promises of God. Paul said this about the promises of God, that all of them find themselves in Christ, yes and amen. Peter wrote about these promises. He called them the very precious promises of God. And then he walked through a process similar to what I'm talking about this morning. And the end of that process is godliness. 
David said that the Lord's promises are pure, like silver refined in a furnace. All three of them knew how to anchor themselves in the promises of God, that those promises of God then were what allowed them by being anchored in them to stand in the midst of the storm, right? To, to not abandon faith, uh, to not lash out, uh, to, to not run backwards, but to continue to follow Christ, to have the resilience that the servant of Christ needs to have, right? So that they can keep on walking despite whatever the situation is, anchored in the promises of God. I've shared, um, I'll use a couple of examples, personal ones that I've shared over the years, right? A couple years ago now, I, I preached a whole sermon series, right, on does God want us to be happy? And in essence, what I was doing was sharing my uh, own personal journey in my early 20s through depression. And as I walked through that, right, I had to wake up every single morning, right, because the, uh, the attack of the enemy was, um, you are never, this was the lie, that you will never be a happy person. Right, that was a lot. You will never be a happy person. No matter how successful, right? And like, of course, 20-something-year-old me thought I was gonna be like, you know, to the moon, right? Right? Like, no matter how successful you be, it won't matter. You will never be happy. That was a lie of the enemy, right? And so, and what that lie wanted me to do was abandon faith and say, God, if you're not gonna make me happy, why should I even follow you? And so what did I have to do? I had to anchor myself in Psalm 119. One joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. And so, God, I'm going to walk in obedience, and I am not going to give up, and I'm going to be anchored in this promise of God, and I know that at some point in time, if I stay anchored in this promise and I keep my eyes fixed on you, then I will be joyful as I walk in Christ's righteousness. And it didn't happen overnight. It didn't. But then eventually, it did. And I can look back now, 11 years later, and say, uh, I have never dealt with that again. Anchored in the promises of God there was another season when my heart was as dry as can be and I had to wake up every morning and I had to um, read and it, it was almost like I, I, I've kept that journal and sometimes I've shown it to you guys because uh, what it reminds me of, like almost every morning, like, like, like the journal more covered in, uh, in tears than pen, right? And I had to quote to myself, Psalm 107, 9, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And so God, uh, my soul feels empty right now and I feel empty, but you satisfy the longing soul and you fill the hungry soul with good things. And so I'm just gonna keep praying this and I'm gonna keep praying this and I'm gonna keep praying this until you do. And guess what? He does. He does. Anchored in the promises of God. Early on in the history of, of our church here, right? There were these seasons where uh, it felt like, we were making a little bit of progress. I mean, like a little bit of progress, right? And then it was like two steps forward and like nine steps back. And then it was like, okay, we took two more steps forward. And then it was like four steps back. And I didn't do the math there, but I think that's 13 steps back. And so in those moments, what would we do? We would turn again to Psalm 126. And we would begin to read through Psalm 126, or I would begin to read through Psalm 126. And it says, what? Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. And so we would just read that and we'd say, God, we, we know that those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. And you know what I do every morning when I pull in here on Sunday morning? I just give a little shout of joy because it's the promise of God fulfilled. 
Are you in a dry season right now? Psalm 107.9, he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And the way to be filled with good things is not to be defiant, is not to think you're going to fill yourself, is not to start casting blame, is not to become the victim, is not to run away from the church, is not to say it's everyone else's fault. It's to humble yourself before the Lord, to anchor yourself in the promises, and to wake up every day faithfully in integrity, following him. And when it is right, he will fill your soul with good things. Are you battling depression? The answer to that is not, I'm going to go fill myself with every other thing. It is joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. There will be a joy that will begin to surface. Run after him. Are you sowing right now? You're sowing and you're sowing and you're sowing and there isn't any reaping and you're wondering, God, the principle of sowing and reaping, it's all throughout the New Testament. How come it isn't coming true in my life right now? Don't stop sowing. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. So we anchor ourselves in the promises of God. And then, then the fifth thing, the fifth thing is this. On the other side, we're different. We're different. Peter calls it godliness. Paul talks to us about our sanctification. Good doctrinal word. David, we just see it practically in his life. David, I mean, David, right? The warrior, David. When Absalom comes to take his kingdom, what does David do? He rallies up the army to go take him out. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. You know what David does? He walks out the back door. He says, God, if you want Absalom to have the kingdom, he can take it. I don't want to fight anymore. You say, oh, what a weak king. No. What a transformed man. What a transformed man. See, the end result of all of this biblical or godly resilience is that Peter preaches the very first sermon. And then like 30 or so years later, Peter is um, uh, writing out to uh, spiritual leaders, right? And he's writing to spiritual leaders, but I think he's writing to everybody. And he says, uh, hey guys, be kind and tender-hearted." to your flock or to people around you. What, what are we seeing there? 30 years or so later, the, the older Peter looking out and reflecting upon his life. Like I wonder when Peter wrote those letters, if tears filled his eyes because he was remembering how tender and kind Christ was to him in his lowest moment. I mean, before, right, the day of Pentecost, like the last words we would use to describe Peter are like tender and kind-hearted. But here now, after walking through this process, that is who he has become. And then Peter shows us the whole key in that text when he says, shepherd others like Christ has shepherded you. In other words, allow the grace of Christ to pour into your heart uh, and so that you can then pour that into others. And the end result of all of this spiritual resilience is not getting back up and saying, look, I made it. Look, you tried to knock me down and I'm still here. Look, all of those people that ganged up against me and whatever, whatever, whatever. Or look, I walked through the difficulty, but I'm still standing. No, the end result of all of it is like the, the, the humbled leader coming through and saying, by the grace of God, I'm still here. And all I can do is pour love out to other people. All I can do is help lift others up because God's grace to me, right, to you now allows you to pour God's grace out to others. See, if the end result of the resilience is just a more prideful person, they didn't walk through godly resilience. They walked through worldly resilience. The end result is a humbled you, 
a more godly, sanctified, redeemed, softer, kinder, tenderhearted you. You say, oh, that sounds weak. Oh, no, that is true strength. That is true strength. And in the church that Jesus came to plant, Jesus looks out and he could have picked anybody and he says, that's the guy. But Peter, that's the guy who I want to go first. He's the one I'm going to let deliver the opening message. Let it be an example. Let it be an example for all of time how the Christian gets back up, how the Christian keeps on going in the midst of difficulty. And may the result of all of that difficulty and all of that error, all of that sin, when people are willing to walk through that process, may the result be a more sanctified, a more redeemed, a more humble servant of Christ. So I don't know where you're at in this process this morning, um, but I, I would hope that the Holy Spirit has revealed that to you and that you would take some time and you would let God work that through you, right? And that you would then all of us would walk out on the other side, walking as a disciple and as a servant leader, humbled by Christ, equipped to do his work. Let's pray. And Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you have spoken into each life what they needed to hear this morning. And Father, I pray that um, all of this then would be rooted in this unbelievable truth, the law of resurrection, that no matter where we're at in this journey, what we know the end is, is exactly what um, Joseph said. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. What Paul wrote, that you work out all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, when we walk through it in this way. And so, Father, where we have it, we repent. Thank you for forgiving us. Help us to walk through it now the right way, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as we are anchored in your promises, and help us to be different on the other side showing the full fruit of what your redemption stories look like. We are grateful that you don't give up on us. We are grateful that we exist in, a, uh, in the church that Jesus came to plant, Lord, uh, and that you just keep reusing people, Lord, <laughs> despite our fears, faults, and failures. Thank you for the grace that you have poured out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.